The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. Visit GoBoldly.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Michael Steele is back. The former chair of the Republican National Committee and I sat down outside at the Inside American Politics Conference at Villa La Pietra, the NYU campus in Florence, Italy. I asked him his thoughts on the midterm elections, the impending speakership of Nancy Pelosi, and whether the real focus should be on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Hear what he has to say about all of this right now. Michael Steele, welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back, indeed. It's so good, so good to be with you. So I want to let, every, I wanna let <laughs> I everyone know. I got choked up there. I was so excited. I want to let everyone know that we are coming to you from Villa La Pietra, NYU, Florence, for the annual Inside American Politics Conference. And we're sitting outside. So if you hear students walking by and, and automobile noises, that is what's going on. And so you Michael said that Steele, was such good fluent. Italian. <laughs> <laughs> so we're having this conversation now, what, a few days after yeah. the, the midterm elections, Democrats retook the majority in the House, Republicans added perhaps a couple of a seats, few, yeah, in, the seats in the Senate. Give me your assessment of what happened on, on election night. What, where are we in terms of American politics? Well, I think as much as the president wanted this to be about him, uh, it was. I think uh, this, all, all midterms election, elections are a referendum on the administration in charge um, in large measure. This more so than we've seen with others, simply because uh, the president put himself on the ballot. He went around the country basically saying, I'm on the ballot, you know, telling the candidates that he's supported. You know, yeah, they can vote for you, but tell them also they're voting for me. And so um, it's, it's a little bit uh, ludicrous and yet still Trumpian uh, for him to then come after the fact and say, no, it wasn't about me at all. The, these losses I had nothing to do with. The House, that's, that's Ryan's problem. Um, and taking credit for whatever, whatever games were in the Senate. But the bottom line remains that the American people, I think, um, really began to answer two questions, one being, what kind of country they wanted, and number two being what kind of leaders do they want to run the country. And I think in large measure, uh, they've turned an eye towards uh, Democrats. Now, uh, I think the Democrats can make a mistake by thinking that all of a sudden the country's making this progressive shift to the left, you know, this lurch uh, towards progressivism. I don't think it's uh, so much that as it is an idea that they are more interested in um, uh, reconnecting government. So it's interesting that you, you asked two really good, you posed two really good questions in your response. Right. And I want to actually to get you to answer them. Okay. The first one being, what kind of country are we? Given the results, what kind of country do you think we are? I think we're a country that right now is um, grappling with some, some truths that we have buried for a long time uh, on race, on class and culture, on ethnicity, on those types of issues, uh, dealing with the diversity of the country, dealing with um, the, the degree to which there is a sort of progressive undercurrent, if you will, and not, not in the sort of far left sense, um, but just in terms of moving politics more towards where people are and in and, and their real life situation. Um, and, and both conservatives and liberals 
can be progressive in that regard, you know, moving beyond uh, sort of a status quo uh, perspective. So you have that sort of roiling tension uh, at, at, a, at a certain level and, and coming to grips with that is what we've seen um, over the last, certainly the last year, but I would say over the last two years, Trump goes in and he picks at those scabs and those wounds and we have to deal with the bleeding. You know, whether it's, you know, a policy that locks kids up, even though they're not our kids, still, as a nation, we have to respond to that. We find ourselves having to respond to seeing children in cages um, or, you know, situations like Charlottesville or, or even um, looking at the economy, how, um, in one instance, people can say, oh, yes, you know, I support the tax cuts, but then in the next breath say that the country's on the wrong track. You know, again, it's a reflection of how people are digesting this. So uh, that that what kind of country are we uh, question forces us to really kind of deal with uh, the answer uh, of recognizing where are we? We are we are a country now that um, uh, at least a good 40 percent of its people uh, don't mind the, the the crazy that we see. Um, they they invite it. They encourage it. They they support it. Um, have very little uh, pushback in terms of the misogynistic comments and attitudes, the the racist comments and attitudes. Um, those things that are kind of coming to the fore again. That scab being pulled off and the wound being re-exposed. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's interesting. You you talk about this. I, I'm thinking about Trump's President Trump's closing argument. Yes, that was so. It was fear and it was hate and it was fear the invasion. And the I caravan, noticed that yeah. we haven't heard much about the caravan since. <clears throat> excuse me, since election night, right. but. I think that gets to the second part of your question, which is what kind of leaders do we want when you have a president who goes around the country openly trafficking in xenophobia and and racism? Answer your question. What kind of leaders do we want? And I think I think the country uh, began to to give some sense of that when you look at the candidacies of of. Democrats who won and Republicans who lost, um, uh, and it, it, sort of the the idea again. And I, I think the takeaway can be can be problematic if if you you look at it through too narrow a prism. So when you look at, for example, um, Beto O'Rourke in Texas for the U.S. Senate race against Ted Cruz. Um, he had a lot of cross appeal. A lot of people started talking about him as the, the, the young JFK, the new JFK, sort of this youthful expression of a hopeful American, sort of Ronald Reagan-esque, um, but a, a younger model of that, um, where you found a lot of Republicans in Texas sort of uh, buying into this idea that he was putting out there. And, and Ted Cruz, in many respects, sort of holding on to the old vestiges of, of old Texas. Um, and, and this sort of youthful, not so much in age, but in terms of freshness, mm-hmm. um, of approach and ideas, and, and a recognition that, damn, we're just tired of being torn apart over stupid stuff like politics, you know? Uh, we're tired of, you know, being pushed into corners. And here's this guy coming out and, and saying, you know, 
there is a better pathway. We're going to have our issues, but there are ways that we can resolve them together um, without having to resort to the kind of ugly politics that we have up till now. And certainly what we've seen Trump to the to, you know, your lead up to the question, um, how the president has played, preyed on the fear and the concerns that people have. So you, you see these the, these fresh voices sort of emerging. Um, and and it's interesting the impact of it because at the end of the last three weeks of the campaign, what did you see Republicans doing? They were pivoting on health care. Last you know, three weeks, re- longer than that. Well, they longer than that, to but talk about health care, but not tax cuts. Right, right. But but even even more specifically, in that sense, that all of a sudden now you had you know you know you had the governor of Florida uh, doing TV com- commercials talking about he's going to protect the very thing that his government is suing the federal government on right. pre-existing conditions. So, you know, same with Scott Walker in, in Wisconsin. And so you found Republicans all of a sudden now recognizing where the sweet spot was. And it wasn't where they were. The sweet spot had moved. It wasn't this, this sort of anger, fear-mongering type of politics that they sort of bought with Trump. It was something different. Um, these these new uh, voices that were beginning to emerge in the political landscape weren't p- playing to those those fears, well, and they had to respond to that. Well, let me stop you there because the president comes out the day after after the midterms, right. and he stands there. He says a whole lot of stuff, but one of the things he said was he he laid blame on those Republicans who lost. He said, you lost because you ran away. From, you didn't, quote, embrace me. They and lost it, because they... It, Corbello, he named out and mispronounced his name. Right. Mia Love, she didn't, she didn't show me any they love. love. Right. I mean, doesn't he have, does he have a point? They lost because of him. It wasn't a matter of embrace. If the only thing I would say to so that... They sh- so they did the right thing by not embracing him? Of course they did. But, but there's a little thing called stigma. So the the, the truth of the matter, I don't need to embrace you, but because we're in the same space, your your ish flows off to me as well. So, you know, I I know this firsthand in 2006, having been on the ballot in 2006 for the U.S. Senate, that despite the fact that people appreciated and supported my uh, tenure as lieutenant governor of Maryland and the work that we had done, uh, across the aisle, they, they saw me as a bipartisan leader, uh, and they saw Governor Ehrlich as a bipartisan leader. Um, the, the stench of, of, you know, the times, you know, being a Republican at that time was not a good, a good thing. You know, I, I called it the scarlet letter R at that time um, because it didn't matter um, what you had been doing and how people looked at you, the fact that you were a Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this environment, it, doesn't, it didn't matter for Mia Love um, that uh, she, she did not embrace the president. The fact that she was part of that environment because she was a Republican um, in, in her state. And this is Utah we're talking right. about. I mean, right? we're not talking about you know, New <laughs> right. Jersey. Right, this is Utah. 
What does that tell you? You're not going to sit here and tell me that if Mia Love had embraced Donald Trump in the state of Utah, that her, her plight would have been different. Right. And in, in, of all the states in the union, Utah is a red state, but it's a red state where President Trump is not popular. Is not popular. Exactly. So uh, and there was a reason why she didn't embrace him because of that unpopularity. But it was not enough to overcome uh, the impact that his presidency and him personally uh, would have on her campaign. So this idea that he's throwing these Republicans under the bus after the fact talks about how petty he is, number one. But number two, how little he appreciates his own shortcomings as someone who, who um, candidates are going to have to judge uh, independent of their party affiliation being, being Republican or their connection to the president. If he thought that Republicans were running from him in 2018, just wait till 2020, baby. You mean in the, in the Senate races, in the because Senate the race, map is completely not just, different. Not just Senate, but even in the House as well, because the map in the Senate, as you said, is very different. But he is absolutely in that case at the top of the ticket. There is no, oh, let's put Donald Trump in play here. No, Donald Trump will be the main stage in that election. And every race down ballot from the presidential race will take into consideration the impact of having him at the top of the ticket. He and there's so many strands here because I do want to come back to Beto. I need right. to talk about it. But let's keep going here uh, on the president. He's this guy who wants all the attention on him. Right. Clearly, what happened in this midterm election is, Mr. President, the direction you are going is a road the American people don't, don't like right. and don't want. And yet we have seen now over the last two years, he does not course correct. He does not admit failure. He does not change. No. So what you're saying is, or let me ask you, are we going to see... Donald Trump 2018 and what he did in the closing argument do that in 2020 on steroids. On what, this wasn't steroids. This was not. Ste <laughs> oh, no, baby. This was this was not steroids because he wasn't on the ballot. Number one, he didn't have to directly engage. Number two, he picked pick and chose where he want to wanted to play. Um, you notice he did not play in battleground congressional districts where the races were competitive for those Republicans. And probably if he had put a little moxie behind it, could have saved a few seats, uh, arguably, uh, because he would have ramped up that Republican base a little bit more and they would have turned out. Um, but he doesn't get to he doesn't get to avoid that in 2020. He's running for reelection. He started his reelection campaign literally a year ago. Um, and he is he's placed himself on the ballot regardless. So he's the center. He, like you, you noted, he wants to be the center of attention. He is now the center of attention going into 2020. So um, there is no there is no workaround where a candidate will be able to say, um, you know, you know, do the Heisman with the president effectively because the president is going to be. Um, part and parcel, the reason why they vote or don't vote for you um, uh, as as a candidate in 2020. And I think that's going to be a reality for a lot of uh, a lot of those uh, Republican candidates in purple states uh, on the on the ballot uh, in in 2020, as well as as well as um, the president himself uh, coming to the recognition that 
maybe his stuff stinks a lot more than he thinks it does. <laughs> I think we, we all know it. The emperor hasn't figured it out yet. What is that smell? I just don't know. We need to do something about that. Yeah, well, the voters are about to in about uh, 18 months. Right. So in the, in the panel that I just moderated and you were, you were sitting on during the Q&A, Jonathan Martin of the New York Times asked you, asked you all a really good question, and right. that was, what loss concerned you the most and and you sort of turned it on its head and you pointed to texas mm -hmm. as a huge warning sign to the republican yep. party and uh and beto o'rourke and ted cruz talk more about that well, why why is that a warning sign yeah I, I think i think a lot of times we focus uh, what seemingly is the right thing uh in other words um the question that Jonathan asked was an appropriate one. So what races uh, should you be concerned about because you lost? Okay, and, and as, a, as a former chairman up and down the pike, um, you, you make that calculation, you do that assessment. But I always sort of, and, and I, I guess one of the reasons I've survived um, uh, in, in the places that I've survived uh, is because I, I, tend to, I tend to play a, a longer game of ball than most uh, political players do. Uh, we tend to be much more short-term. And for well over 10 years now, I have, I have had my own particular flashlight on the great state of Texas. Uh, why is that? Well, because I've paid attention to what the Democrats have been doing in the great state of Texas for the last 10 to 12 years. And they have uh, very effectively gone about uh, laying down the kind of uh, seed that has generated, uh, rather appropriately germinated, into the election of Democratic candidates for mayor in some pretty important spots in Texas, um, you know, in Dallas and Houston and places like that where Democrats, uh, seemingly people look at Texas and they go, well, that's a red state. It's, mm -hmm. it's very conservative. Well, there are a lot of Democrat elected officials in the state of Texas um, who are leading edge indicators of where the state is going. In other words, Republicans in Texas have gotten used to voting for Democrats in Texas. Aha. Uh -huh. All right. And, and I think um, in looking at the way this race played out between Beto and Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz won. But in the end, Republicans, I think, lost. Because what you saw was emerging uh, Unlike what we've seen with Democratic candidates before um, the, the, the female uh, Senate candidate, state senator who ran around Wendy, the... Wendy Davis. Wendy Davis, thank you. Wendy Davis, who everyone sort of, oh my God, oh, yeah. got excited about Wendy Davis. Wendy Davis was no Beto O'Rourke, but Wendy Davis was the precursor that allowed a Beto O'Rourke to arise. Huh. All right. So folks didn't pay attention to... They were just looking at the end result of that. I was like, uh... There's a little bit Pay more attention here. to the seeds. Pay attention to the seeds because the seeds that, that fell from her campaign and the momentum that was born out of that, uh, while it dissipated, uh, yes, there were still those seeds planted. And I think Beto, Beto was uh, a beneficiary of that. So um, the, the, the truth of Texas for Republicans is, and I, and I say this with a great deal of sincerity, two cycles from now, meaning the 2020 elections and 2022, because then you'll have redistricting and a whole bunch of things. Yes, the, the legislature is still decidedly uh, Republican. Um, 
but the demographics you can't overcome. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and are you saying demographic, demographics are destiny? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yeah, they can be. They can be. Uh, and I think when you're looking at a country that is, um, various communities are youthening, mm -hmm. right? as those voters come online, particularly in the Hispanic community, um, and, and the country is browning, uh, yeah, uh, I think the demographics can be can be your political destiny if you're not smart, mm -hmm. and if you don't know how to get in front of that and develop that 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 uh, relationship, uh, it will it will break itself off uh, in a way that you're kind of left at the side of the road. And I think Democrats um, uh, have seen this uh, and and pretty much and maybe somewhat in, inadvertently, but pretty much found themselves in an advantageous position. Um, and that's why a lot of Democrats that you talk to while they were depressed about what happened in Texas, they see longer term, mm -hmm. this was actually maybe a good thing. The Cape Up Podcast is sponsored by Pharma, where the 140,000 researchers with America's biopharmaceutical companies are finding new cures and treatments for diseases like hepatitis C, HIV, and diabetes. So here's to the fearlessness to fail so success can follow and to the patients helping to find the breakthrough that might save their lives and perhaps one day yours. Welcome to the new era of medicine where together we go boldly. A message from America's biopharmaceutical companies. Visit GoBoldly.com. Well, let's talk near term because okay. in, a, in a few weeks, Nancy Pelosi more likely than Nancy. not will be the next, the next speaker of the house. Right. Um, she's from Maryland originally. Yep. You're from Maryland. Yep. Talk about Nancy Pelosi and what President Trump has in store in dealing with not minority leader Pelosi, but Speaker Pelosi. Well, well I, first off, Trump has a problem with, with strong women who have opinions. Um, and and uh, he has a problem with... Uh, women in leadership positions that 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 can go toe to toe and countermand his his machismo right and and i think uh, in nancy pelosi uh she has she grew up in an all-male political environment where there was nothing but testosterone and machismo and and all of the crap that goes with that her dad was was, her, her dad mayor, was mayor one of the one of the most powerful baltimore. mayors of, of baltimore um and that political family, um, you know, had great sway in the state for a long time. Uh, and so that's the environment in which she grew up. She parlayed that in, in, into a successful race in California. And now, um, you know, historically, the first female Speaker of the House and soon to be uh, the second female Speaker of the House. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think... You underestimate Nancy's uh, abilities at your own peril. I think Barack Obama did uh, to a certain extent. And then actually, uh, certainly at the end of uh, the health care debate, came to rely on those skill sets because we have health care um, for good or for bad. Uh, we can have that policy discussion. But the politics of it was won by, by one person and one person only, and that's Nancy Pelosi. 
um, and which is why I focused uh, our firepower in 2010 on her and not Barack Obama. In the form of a bus <laughs> that went bus around the country. And, uh, fire emblazoned, Pelosi. Yeah, what did it say? Fire Pelosi. And there was a reason for that, because I understood where the power center was in that, in that very dynamic relationship between the White House and the House, between the president and the speaker. The speaker had the edge. And Obama was largely okay with that. Uh, I think in many respects, um, and so there are a lot of a lot of stories about Nancy Pelosi. I think that will tell you truth about her abilities. Um, the least of which has to do with how she basically whipsawed her caucus um, and and pulled together uh, the the health care legislation and got it passed without one Republican vote. That's. That's an amazing feat. If you understand how the House works, right? that's an amazing feat to get something that's going to reconfigure one-sixth of the nation's economy without uh, a vote from the opposition party. And that means you held your own caucus together in a way that J- John Boehner could not do uh, and, and Paul Ryan could not do. Um, and quite honestly, very few speakers have been able to do in, in modern history. She's very, she's very proud of that accomplishment of be. getting the Affordable be. Care Act passed without a single Republican vote. I asked her yeah. um, uh, in the early days of her, her being minority leader and the budget fights were happening, and, but the debt ceiling was coming. And I asked her if she thought then Speaker Boehner had the votes to raise the ceiling. She says, well, you have to ask, you have to ask him that. I was like, but you just said you are a master vote counter. Like, you know how this works. And she said, again, you have to ask him that I'll say this. I got the Affordable Care Act passed without a single Republican vote. I mean, yeah. she says a lot in that one, in yeah, that she one does. sense. And, and I think, again, I think people underestimate her ability. I, I've been on the record for over a year saying uh, that if Nancy Pelosi wants to be the next Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi will be the next Speaker of the House. And for all these Democrats who ran around the country in their congressional and Senate races or whatever races they're in, talk about, well, no, I'm not voting for Nancy. Yeah, you say that until you sit down in front of her. <laughs> Wait, what's going what's gonna to happen? Michael, what's going what's gonna to happen when they sit down in front of her? What's gonna, well, I think what will happen is Nancy look at them and go, I'd like your support for Speaker. And they'll go, well, I'm sorry, I was, I, I've said on the record I can't support you. And she said, that's fine. Just remember, when I win this and it comes to running this house, just remember <laughs> who the speaker is. Right. <laughs> dot, 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 dot. And then and suddenly. This isn't a decision for the majority leader. This <laughs> a, these decisions will be made by the speaker. And these decisions being your office is in the ba- windowless <laughs> office in the basement. Um, you, your, your budget is. Your budget. Your oh, staff, that committee right? you wanted. Yeah, committee assignments. Oh, my God. Right. I'm sorry. It's all yeah. full up. And, and so, look, I get it. And some will be given a pass on that because she can afford to give them a pass on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, some will not. Some will some some of those uh, slights uh, will be a personal to her because she knows what she's done for some of these candidates in the past and and so forth. So you have to be very careful about uh, and it's a trap when the press gets in front of you, when guys like you get in front of a candidate and goes, (laughs) are you intending to vote for someone as, you know, it's a trap and, and you have to recognize it. And yes, you're trying to win your primary or win your general, but you have to think again, longer term. 
when I win, what happens if I'm now on the record trashing this person? Some of these people really trashed her, severely trashed her during the campaign. And I can't believe that they were so deaf, dumb, and blind not to recognize where it tells me they didn't have an appreciation of what power she had Mm -hmm. and position that she would be in. Because always ask yourself the question, well, who's going to challenge her? When, uh, when Alexander, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez takes out the guy who is supposedly going the to next replace in line, her right. next in line, you, you're then left with, okay, so who does that leave? Mm-hmm. So, um, One of the things you pointed out to me in a conversation yesterday was not only the danger is, not danger, but the issue for these members of the House sitting in front of Nancy Pelosi and having the conversation right. about whether they're going to vote for her but then when it comes time to vote, they actually, this is not a secret ballot. It's not a secret Once ballot. Once it gets to the floor. Not for speaker, right. They've got to stand You've up. You've got to stand up and declare openly who you're voting for for speaker. And so it's going to be a tense moment for some of these people because mm-hmm. she's sitting there with a clipboard. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's probably not sitting there with a clipboard. But In her, her head, sta- she but her is. Staff is her like, staff is definitely sitting there with a clipboard. All right. So um, what are the dangers then? So let's Nancy Pelosi, she's, she becomes the next right. Speaker of the House. And now all the world's attention is now focused on on the, re- on the Democrats and what they're going to do, right. which is fraught with danger because yeah. there is a section of the party that not only wants Trump investigated, they want him run out on a rail. <laughs> they want impeachment now. Uh, yeah, I, they need to slow their roll on that. Um, first off, the country did not, the country may have voted for a lot of things on, on Tuesday uh, in the election uh, last week, but they didn't vote for impeachment. And, and I think we need to be honest about that. I think if there's any interpretation that that's what happened, it's a misinterpretation, certainly a misunderstanding of where the voters were. There was nothing reflected in exit polling. There was nothing reflected in polling leading up to what, not the even, Wait, but not even the wrong, the wrong track numbers? The wrong track numbers do not get you to impeachment. <laughs> okay. okay. The wrong track numbers may get you to a lot of other boxes that you need to examine as the party out of power or the party in power, but it does not get you to impeachment. Um, and so I think that, um, uh, and I, you know, I, I put, cautioned on that on Twitter, and of course people got all you know upset about it. It's like, well, look, I, I get your own personal biases, and you want Donald Trump go gone, but Donald Trump is not going to go that way. Donald Trump is either going to go by his own hand, meaning he doesn't run for re-election, uh, which is still something I think is, put a little asterisk there. Um, oh, still, I'm going to write this down as a prediction. That's, that, Unclear. That's, that's a little bit of a possibility. Um, uh, two, uh, uh, Robert Mueller's uh, investigation, uh, and Nancy Pelosi has, and I thought, it of, when you're contrasting uh, press conferences post-election, she, she was the stateswoman. Mm-hmm. She gave the, the statesman's response to the election. The president gave a petulant 10-year-old response to the election uh, when he's blaming those who didn't support him and vote, you know, and, and, and embrace him and, and uh, shifting the blame and, and, and sort of, again, preying on, on old, old narratives. So you had this contrast, and of course, getting into the whole fight with members of your your colleagues in the, in the media, um, in in front of the nation, picking on 
you know, African-American uh, journalists, a female journalist. Can which, you, like, three just, in, in as just, many days. It's just amazing I mean, to it, me. I mean, this is, this isn't just, this isn't accidental. No, it's not. It's all deliberate. And it's now, is, deliberate. It, is it because these are women or is it specific to black women that he has a problem I, with? I, you know, that's, that's a very good question. And I, I you know, I think it, it, part of the female narrative, I mean, these women standing up and questioning him in, in a way that is um, um, serious and, and determined. Uh, but I think it also, when you, you look at how he has talked about, talked about, referred to black women specifically, um, from uh, April, our friend April Ryan, uh, to members of Congress. Uh, and and um, uh, it, there's something there. There's, a, there's an undercurrent that's different uh, and unfortunate, and I think it needs to be exposed and called out for what, I, what we perceive it to be. Racist? Yeah, and I think only he can assure us otherwise, but he hasn't, so therefore. <laughs> and even if he were to try, the credibility is yeah, gone. Um, we keep talking about Nancy Pelosi, and all the attention is on her, but... Am I wrong in thinking that really all the attention should be on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell? Because let's say Nancy Pelosi is successful in actually doing a policy agenda, right. getting bills out of the House, infrastructure, health care, um, climate change, you name it, pie right. in the sky issues. And then it goes over to the Senate. Where it dies. What's, Talk more about that, because well, yes, it, stuff will go over there and die, but why? Well, I, I think largely, um, I, I don't know, to be honest, if I fully subscribe to that. Yes, the Senate is the place where, where legislation goes to die. Okay, that's part of our process, the way the founding fathers set it up. All right, and, and, and that's fine. We get that part of it. But I think in, in, when you're looking at the 2020 cycle, which Mitch McConnell is uh, much more of a long ball player, than many of his counterparts are. We saw that with Supreme Court nominees, um, where he played a long game and he took a risk and a bet, and he, and he won on that because he sized up his opponents and how they would respond. The X factor for Mitch McConnell is, is not Chuck Schumer. It's not Nancy Pelosi and the bills that she sends. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> the X factor is Donald Trump, right. all right? Because Donald Trump is not a Republican. Donald Trump is not a conservative, and he could give a rat's ass about both of those things, as we just saw play out in this last election. Um, and, and so I think a couple of things. One, Nancy Pelosi has the advantage of sending over to the House, to the, from the House to the Senate, legislation that the president will want to take a bite of starting with infrastructure. And she's articulated that already. And I think um, it does a couple of things for her. It, it puts them in, it puts her leadership in play with the president in the sense that they now have something to negotiate over and about. Uh, it takes off the table, at least takes off the top side of the table. Now, beneath the table, it could still be moving. Uh, all of the investigations and the stuff that the hard left progressive rank and file want to see her do, she has to be strategic and smart enough to recognize she cannot give Donald Trump that win because he will beat her over the head with it. He will make himself the victim in 2020. It will rile his base up to the same degree that we saw in the 2016 cycle 
when the Republican establishment basically pissed on him and said, now we don't want this guy. Certainly after the Access Hollywood tape where everybody kind of ran, ran, ran away, away from what happened, right. that base coalesced. It tightened around him. So that's his play. And that's what we saw him do in this last election with the, the xenophobia and the, the racism and just sort of tightening that base. And it worked for him in the Senate. Mm -hmm. It worked. It held the Senate seats that he needed to have held uh, in many respects. So there is that piece where Mitch McConnell's concern really comes in is he's looking at 20 plus Republicans running in purple states. And he if he wants to be the majority leader come 2021, he's got to ask himself, what do I need to do to hold this majority? All right with Trump at the top of the ticket. And, and it's, it's going to be, I think, um, giving his Republicans something that they too can run on in that cycle. And so all of a sudden that infrastructure bill may not look so bad to him in terms of killing it out or outright. Um, because in purple states, that infrastructure bill is going to be a popular piece of legislation. Mm -hmm. It's going to mean jobs. It's going to be. It's going to play right into sort of the growth expectation or narrative that Republicans are talking about. Certainly, in terms of sort of these enterprise zone types efforts that they were um, uh, touting over the last year. So it there is there is a space where Nancy Pelosi could actually wind up helping someone like Mitch McConnell. Um, and, and while it may tick off some of her base, it may tick off some of the people that she's really uh, going to need in the final hour because of the politics of, you know, Bernie Sanders and the presidential cycle and all of that. Um, she's going to find a way to, to, to create wins to hold, her, hold, hold the leadership in the House um, and at the same time, um, yeah, there's going to be some derivative benefit maybe for, for Republicans in the Senate in purple states who, who may want to buck a Mitch McConnell who says, we don't want to move on this. And they go, no, yeah, we do. And the president himself is going to want that because he's going to want the win. He's, going to, he's already indicated his willingness to negotiate with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on DACA. You know? But can he even be trusted? Well, but here's the deal. Why did that? Why did that break down? It didn't break down because of anything Mitch McConnell did. It, it, broke, it, broke, down because because he, it broke down because of the Freedom Caucus in the House. He, he, the he House killed majority. It. it wasn't just the free. Well, I mean, by going back but to the was, White House through Stephen Miller, but it was but that, the White House but, killed it. But that was that. That was coming from animating from that very, very strong majority voice in in the caucus, right? That's not there now. Yeah, it's going to consolidate because of the losses, the moderate Republicans uh, who lost uh, House seats, uh, the moderate to true conservative uh, Republicans who lost House seats in, in, 20, in, the, in the 2018 cycle. Uh, that, con that coalesces and condenses that, that Freedom Caucus, but they're in the minority now. And so in terms of weight and pressure on, on, on the president, it's not, there's not as much there. Uh, and the president's going to want to get something big done, and his big deal is going to be infrastructure, in my uh, estimation. Um, can the Republican Party, with the top of, a, top of the ticket and President Trump, who ran around the country in the closing days with a message of racism and xenophobia and hate, can the party 
hold together if, as you say, he runs that same playbook in 2020? What does that say about the Republican Party? Oh, the, well, that part of the party, the, the Republican Party that uh, many of us uh, belong to, I'd say present tense, um, is, is, is on the ropes. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it is, it is uh, given way to this sort of Trumpian, Trumpian impact, uh, this very uh, nationalistic, with the president calling himself a nationalist now, He's ostensibly um, and essentially said that about the party itself, that we're now a nationalist party um, because he's the titular head. And, you know, he's, he's going to reflect that and we're going to reflect that. And there are those of us who are, um, uh, it's not a question of being resistant to it. It's like outright rejected. This is, this is not resistance. This is rejection. This is bullshit. We're not buying it. Um, we don't want any parts of it because it's not ref reflective of any uh, angels, uh, better or worse, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for America. It is not reflective of who we are. So the, that part of the party um, uh, has, has its hands full in, in the fight there. Uh, so in terms of where the party, how the party pivots and moves in 2020, you've got full embrace embracing of, of Trumpism. It, it, that they're, not gonna, they're not going to move away from that. And whether there are uh, battles internally uh, to challenge the president and to challenge that remains to be seen. We don't know how that plays out. But the truth of it is there is going to be a, a moment of loggerhead where it's going to be that come to Jesus truth that you're, you're either going to stand with this or you're going to stand with the legacy of Reagan and and Eisenhower and 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 Bush and and Ford and all those other Republicans. Lincoln, Lincoln, yeah. Imagine, right? <laughs> Imagine. Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's going to play itself out because, again, when the guy who's running your your shop has no allegiance to what your shop does or who's in the shop, um, this is what you get. Well, let me end with the same question I always end with mm -hmm. with you, and that is why, given all this stuff that's happening, right. why are you still in the Republican Party? Why don't you join other Republicans of, of, of conscience and concern right. in leaving the party? Well, because this is where my conscience is. I mean, I, I, I made a conscious effort to come into the party as a young man uh, against great odds and a great deal of resistance by family and friends who were like, uh, I don't know if we really want you to come to Thanksgiving dinner if <laughs> you're doing this. Um, so there's that. But let me put it to you. Let me answer it this way. So I come to your home. You invite me over for a nice dinner and I come to your home. Uh, and uh, during the course of that evening, uh, I start breaking your china. I start uh, slicing your drapes, uh, tearing up your carpet, putting holes in your walls. So at that point, do you leave or do you kick my ass out? <laughs> I mean, that, that's almost a rhetorical question because I'm going to kick your ass. <laughs> you go kick me out, right? right? And that's where I am. I'm not leaving. This is my house. I helped build the modern uh, uh, Republican Party as best as I could, along with a lot of good men and women 
uh, who, um, you know, including some of my friends who've left like Steve Schmidt and Nicole Wallace. But a lot of us are still here like Kay James and, 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 um, and J.C. Watts. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I know I got to repair the drapes and, and, and patch up the holes in the walls and, and replace the carpet, but your ass will be gone. And that's the goal. Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National <laughs> Committee, as always, thank you very much for being thank on the you. podcast. No, and uh, look, could you provide the scenery the next time we do this? <laughs> just bring this backyard with us. This is beautiful. Deal. <laughs> Done. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.